Welcome to the Bucket List Life Podcast with Trav Bell, the world's number one bucket list expert. Bucket List Life's mission is to help you get off the treadmill, stop Groundhog Days, hack your habits, and live a regret-free life. Because we know life's way too short not to live your bucket list life. So please welcome your host, Trav Bell, the Bucket List Guy. Hey guys, welcome to the Bucket List Life podcast and I'm so stoked that I've got the one and only Jeremy Locke on the podcast today. Hey man, how are you? I'm doing great, brother. It's always great to to be talking to you and being out here and talking to your audience, man. I love talking to people. Oh, dude, you're so good at it and so inspirational. I can't wait to get into this combo because representing today it's that my literally my go-to hat i literally got a whole bunch of other hats but um what you represent what we'll get into today and explain what aerial recovery is all about this is literally my go-to hat <laughs> you know it's a, it's early in the morning here it's a bad hair day so uh it's um i'm not just wearing it for you because of this i'm wearing it because i believe in it and it's a sweet fitting hat too yeah it looks good man i appreciate you wearing it Hey, look, let's uh, let's get in. Whereabouts in the world are you right now? Right now I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. Rightio, rightio. What, and you guys, straight up, you have an island, as you do. I mean, who doesn't? Who doesn't, right? I mean... I, I don't believe that I do, still. <laughs> <laughs> so just take me through, like, um, how do you split your time between uh, the British Virgin Islands, your island... What's the island called again? It's called uh, it's called Buck Island, and on it we have our resort, which is the Aerial BVI. Yeah, beautiful. How, what's the split of time between there and Nashville? Um, I'd say it was probably about a third. So I do a third on the island, a third in Nashville, and then a third deployed somewhere with aerial recovery, helping out, helping people out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, so first of all, man, like um, ex-military, why did you join the military? What was the impetus for that? Well... My performance in high school had a little bit to do to it, but <laughs> do with it. But I will say that uh, I grew up, I had a, I mean, we all got our stories, right? Our, our complicated childhoods and our difficulties and, and all of that. And um, due to situations in my life, I was very much in, in tune with my, my grandparents. They were uh, super influential for myself and my little sister. And my grandpa happened to be a, a World War II veteran. And I, so I idolized him. And as I got into high school, I wanted to be a guy that traveled. I, I wanted to, to get out and, and I, I loved Oregon, but I just didn't want to get pigeonholed into one spot. I just kind of, so I, you know, I was talking to my dad and he did say he would help me with some college money. And then he was like, you know, uh, if you go to the army, you can travel and shoot guns and stuff. And that might be kind of fun. And your grandpa was in it. So I think my dad was just kind of like trying to talk his way out of having to pay for some of my college, but at the end of the day, it turned out being a, a good decision for me. And I was, you know, what was, was crazy is September 11th, 2001, right? So I joined the army in July of 2001. And when I went in and there wasn't too much going on and I remember I was washing dishes. So you joined like four months, three, four months before September 11th. Before September 11th. So I can't say I was one of those guys that felt like, oh, I was inspired and, you know, uh, you punched up, give our Statue of Liberty a black eye. You know, I wasn't one of those guys. I was in kitchen patrol is what we call it. And I was washing dishes in Fort Benning, Georgia. And all I hear is the, like the air raid sirens go off. And I was like, I wonder what that is. And, uh, cause you know, when, when that thing happened, man, like nobody knew what was going on. We, uh, there, those planes are crashing into buildings. People thought we were under attack. So those bases, I don't know if a lot of people remember this, but in the U S you used to be able to, as a civilian, you could drive right onto an army base. 
and you didn't really have to show an ID until you went into the store or something. But uh, things are way different now, right? But uh, that's that was my experience, and I remember sitting there. I was like, "Well, I went in for to travel and you know, you know, get some college money and stuff." I was like, "I'm probably going to be doing a little bit more than I thought," but uh, it ended up being all right. Things got a little serious. How was that around that time? You know, like it was so it was so crazy. Obviously, um, you know, did you just go from like zero to hero overnight, like like from from zero to a hundred? What was the initial reaction? Like you were full service military at that point in time. I'm tipping, training all done, dishes done, and how were you guys deployed? You know, how were you put into action? I had an interesting pathway. So I was in the infantry when I first came in. So. Definitely combat arms were the first units to deploy places, but I had already been recruited for a thing called the Honor Guard, and that was in Washington, D.C., so I was signed up for that duty station, and I actually showed up to the Honor Guard, and I saw it from a different perspective, right? My primary duty in the Honor Guard was working funerals at Arlington National Cemetery, so I got there, and it, you know it's the 3rd U.S. Infantry Regiment, the old, the old guard, they call it, because it's the the longest active regiment in the United States Army. And we were there in primarily ceremonial unit. You know, and I started doing funerals when I got there. Um, I did have a deployment uh, to the Horn of Africa at the end of 2003. But prior to that, you know, most of our funerals were World War II veterans, Korean War, guys and gals that had lived a pretty long life. So it is an honorable thing to, to lay them to rest. But as the Afghan war kicked off in Iraq, now I'm starting to uh, be there and, you know, I would, I was what's called a honcho. So we would fold a flag and then I would present the flag to the next of kin. Oh man, and you're that, that guy. Went from being, oh, you're that guy. Yeah. 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 And it went from, you know, and I was like an 18, 19, 20 year old. And that went from being a, uh, you know, a, an 80 year old widow to being a 40 year old father or a 19 year old girlfriend or wife or whatever, that really got things kind of real because we started getting the deaths from Afghanistan and, and Iraq coming back. And, and that honestly, that kept me in the military because I didn't have any aspirations of making it a career. But once I started, I had that sense of service and duty and I hadn't actually deployed out to combat, I would say. So that was one of the reasons I stayed in the military. So in terms of you know, action, where were you deployed? What did you see? You know, you don't have to get into graphic detail, obviously, but what level of activity did you get involved in? Yeah. Uh, I mean, initially I was, uh, I went out to Iraq in my first, um, I did the Horn of Africa deployment. That was about six months and, uh, wasn't, you know, we were in Djibouti and Kenya and a, a couple of those places. Wasn't, while it was a combat deployment, we didn't really see anything there. Actually, I do remember one time we were on a I don't know, you know, the C-130s. So there's a C-130 aircraft, you know, it's a military aircraft and uh, pretty powerful. And we take off this aircraft and we're sitting in the back getting moved from one base to another. And the, the plane takes off and it shoots pretty much straight up in the air, starts rolling. And then we hear like, and it was shooting flares out the back of it. And uh, they get on it they make an announcement afterwards. They're like, oh, yeah, someone just targeted us with a surface-to-air missile. So we were performing, you know, invasive <laughs> maneuvers, but don't worry, it missed us. And I was like, oh, okay. Oh, now great. you tell us. <laughs> yeah, so that was that was an interesting ride. But other than that, you know, I was, um, in my infantry time, I was primarily an Iraq guy. I did, uh, in 2007 to eight. I did a 14-and-a-half-month deployment, which is a long time to be deployed. And that was just outside of Sadr City. And that one was pretty kinetic for a, a lot of times there. And, you know, saw a lot of stuff, did a lot of stuff in that time. Now also, mate, like you're a Green Beret. How does one become a Green Beret? It's a process, man. So I got to that point where 
when I was in the infantry, I loved a lot of the guys I worked with, but there was, um, I don't know, I just had this sense if I stayed in the military and the infantry, these, some of these leaders were going to get me killed. I just felt like I didn't have, like, there's some high quality people, but not the best caliber always. And I remember being out with a sniper team in Iraq and we met these like four guys and they were big bearded and muscular tattooed dudes and they show up and they're like hey what's up fellas you know what do you got and you know we're explaining yeah we're this is our overwatch business what they're watching they're like well where do you have your sniper rifle set up and they're like why don't you just set it up over here and we're like well there's a wall in the way they're like just put a blow a hole in the wall and we're like what you know but i ended up talking to these guys and they were so professional they were freaking cool looking and they knew what the hell they were talking about. And they ended up being, a, it was a Green Beret team that was out there. <laughs> you grew a beard. You, you're big anyway. Yeah. You grew a beard. Yeah. You got tats. <laughs> got, grew oh. a beard, got tats. And that's all you need. No, there was, uh, but uh, yeah. But other than that, man, like you, just like anything in the Army, you, you got to apply for it. And it's a long process. You go to this thing called selection after you're accepted in. The nickname for that is Two Weeks in Hell because it's, it's pretty terrible. I did that selection in 2009 and got selected. And then you go off to Fort Bragg or whatever politically correct name it is now. That base out there in North Carolina. And uh, it took me about two years of training to earn the Green Beret. And then I was assigned to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, which is where I, uh, right outside Nashville, about an hour from Nashville. That's why I live out in this area. Tell me, what's the difference between the Green Beret and a Navy SEAL? So I hear this one a lot. I, I got it off another podcast that you're all just listening to you on another podcast. I'm like, I'm actually interested in that. In, I didn't listen to the answer. So uh, yeah, I'm keen to know. Yeah. So it, it's, um, it's what we call mission set, right? So uh, while we're both special operations, the army is technically the only special forces because the U.S. Army Special Forces is what we're called. Now with um, Navy SEALs, they're very good when it comes to... Um, like H, we call it like HR hostage rescue, direct action. Like if you need someone to go and plan a good mission and, and go get bin Laden or something like that, like you'll be hard pressed to find anybody better than Navy SEALs to go do that. But if you need a group of individuals to go in before they find bin Laden and work with a bunch of partner force and convince people to do things for you and set up networks and find people. That's kind of what the Green Berets do. So we do, we specialize in this thing called unconventional warfare. Basically it's working with guerrillas and we create little armies of partner force inside of countries and we train and equip them and we fight alongside them to uh, help them in whatever joint cause we see. Right. So if they're, we're trying to, of course, forward the U S um, United States, of America's interests abroad, but also help out maybe rebel fighters inside of Syria, for instance, to fight against uh, ISIS or, you know, against the regime or input from other actors. So ours is a little bit more complex and cerebral, I would say. Yeah. It's fascinating. And uh, as general, you know, general civilians, we've got no idea. So, so who collects like the initial intelligence about a place, you know, and what's going on, who gets in there on the ground, you know, who's in there first. So I know a good mate of mine who I grew up with, he's in the SAS in Australia, special forces in Australia. And he's, uh, he's on the long gun too. So he's, he's a sniper and he went after school, he just went dark. You know, he just went under the radar. No one could, everyone knew there was these stories coming out about how he's deployed in, into certain areas around the world with these other special forces guys in Australia and uh, collecting intelligence. And that's what I believe he did. 
you know, he'd go and live in the jungle for, you know, a few months and live off the land and, you know, collect intelligence, send it back, and then they send the, the military in after they've done all that. Who does that in the United States? Who goes in and gets stuff done first? I mean, it's there's so many different ways to collect intelligence. We have, uh, and the U.S. works with other other allies to go do it too. But, you know, there, you can get things, you, you'd be surprised what you can find just open source. Everybody loves to put things on the internet. If you know how to track, you can track people's phones, you can track what apps people are using. There's a lot of ways that are to do that as well. But when it comes to actually getting in on the ground, there's, um, you know, our three-letter agencies work on that a lot as well, like the CIA and and those types of groups, they get in and, and do that uh, secret squirrel stuff, as we like to call it. There are aspects of, of to what the military branches do and the special forces do when it comes to that stuff, too. And so it's the, the trick is to have all of the people that are collecting the information be talking to each other so then you can create because everybody gets a little slice of the pizza. Right. So if you're looking at something with satellites, you get this slice. If you have people on the ground, you get this slice. So you have all of those different ways of collecting the intelligence to create a picture. And then that's when, uh, and you know, we want everything, we call it like dual or triple source. You don't want just one, one way of, well, yeah, you want to connect them all together. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. How long were you in the military for? When did you get out and leading to heal the heroes, aerial recovery? What were your personally, your biggest problems, you know, that you faced when you became a vet? out of the military yourself. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, the we call it the operations tempo, like how often we deploy, training, you know, away from home. And you spend, especially when you get into the special forces, you spend a, uh, you know, I spent nearly a decade as a high performer is what we would call it, you know. And when you spend a lot of time training for deployments or out deployed, you spend a lot of time uh, with your senses heightened and fully on guard and, and aware. And, you know, that stuff doesn't, it's not like an on-off switch, right? So, yeah, so when you get back, you know, I, I've had all the classic PTS or PTSD or whatever you want, PTS episodes where, you know, I, I remember one time I got back and uh, I was driving from Fort Benning, Georgia, and I was driving up to Virginia and I got tired, right? So I did what most people would do and pull off and I reclined the seat in my uh, truck and took a little, you know, power nap so I could uh, keep driving safely. And I remember, um, like, kind of becoming lucid and I was hearing gunfire going off and I was hearing my radio crackling. And so I felt like I was in a a firefight and I came out of it, but I turned my truck on or put it in gear. I got down the highway and I drove like a good mile or two on the interstate, reaching back for trying to find my rifle and looking for my radio. I was in like uh, South Carolina or something. (laughs) And, and uh, you know, and it was like, so yeah. that's, that's why I talk about that switch. You know, it, it doesn't, while that stuff does fade for some people, it doesn't fade for everybody. And depending on the, the type of trauma that you endure or see, you know, we all respond to it differently. And, and, and when I go out and speak and I talk about post-traumatic stress and, and the way it manifests in me and the difficulties that I have, it's so interesting because you definitely do not need to be in the military to be someone who's suffering from post-traumatic stress. And I, you know, if you're driving a, an SUV, or a Humvee down the road and something bad happens to that vehicle, while that uh, point of impact to create the trauma might be different, the way that your body and your mind responds to it afterward is very similar. And I've found in speaking and talking to people that a lot of people can really relate to my story, even though for them it would be like something they would read out of a book. 
or something, right? But they can really relate to it. So it's so I love speaking, man. And 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 I always say too, you know, the more you speak and the more you get that story and that poison out of you, the more you can start healing from inside. And it helps so many other people. Yeah, and the more vulnerable and authentic and real that you are, you know, as an alpha male too, there's a direct correlation, right? And you would have seen this. The same with me. The more vulnerable I am on stage or in groups or you know, the more that gives license to other people doing exactly the same, right? So the more I'm vulnerable is the more I help. Exactly. Yeah. And you, I mean, you have a, I remember when I first met you out in uh, in Dallas, was, that was last year now, right? That was uh, just listening to you talk and, and the reason as to why you're doing what you're doing. That's really, if you want to be successful at something or find what that, what that something is that is along with your passion and your purpose and then connect it to your why, you know, I was really moved by your story as well. And I love hearing that vulnerability, especially coming from alphas like yourself in me, you know, like there's Green Beret alphas and then there's, you know, Aussie trying to, trying to do their best. Well, I don't know. Yeah. Well, you guys are good. You guys have unparalleled crap talking ability though. So I will say that. That's the thing. When we became mates, you know, like you got me straight away. You got the Australian sarcasm. You got what we're about. So obviously you've hung around with enough Australians to realize that we don't take ourselves too seriously. We'd love to have a good time. We take the, as we say, we take the piss out of each other. We have a crack, you know, and dare say that you've come across some Aussies in your, in your time in the military. Oh yeah. I actually had a good couple of buddies that were uh, Aussie SAS guys that I, I trained with in North Carolina. We were at a uh, course out there for, I was a Green Beret at the time and they were out there. They became real good buddies of mine. I still talk with them every once in a while on, on Facebook. And, and uh, I remember our instructor would always break into his computer and then change his back screen. Like pictures of us doing something stupid. It was great. But the, yeah, so I, I really bonded with them too. Because I have a, ever since I was young and, you know, even in high school, I was voted like most humorous. Whether it's out of necessity or something, like the humor bone has, has helped a lot lot in my life i think i've got mild pdsd mate and, and i say that jokingly because when we met we met in dallas and i we met at the go abundance event i did the opening and closing keynote but in between you took us out out fucking dallas into this weird place so i'm on the back of a truck just finished my keynote and then we go and shoot high-powered weapons that tracy my partner who you've met as well she just fucking loved she was in the zone she grew up as in the farming community so me, princess over here, you know, <laughs> not too familiar with guns. We don't have guns like we, you do in America, certainly in Australia, and never been around it. And then next minute, what were the fuck we were shooting? I mean, was it 50 cal? Yeah, I have an M107 Alpha 50 cal, Barrett 50 cal sniper rifle. So, you know, I mean, that, that thing's fun, man. Like the 50 cal BMG rounds, those things are like six inches long. I mean, it's six inches long. Oh, the, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we tried. We, we tried. That no, was about that fucking beat. We tried to get that back in the. Or Tracy tried to get her shell because you gave everyone the shell to you know keep. And we tried to get back in the country, and the cop stopped us. Oh man! Fortunately, we didn't uh, take that souvenir. But she was. I'll yeah, try to. Yeah. I'll try to mail you one and make it look like a Christmas ornament or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Engrave it. That was epic, and yeah, it was just uh, well, it's a bucket list experience. Yeah, you know, here's me, here's me, you know, like hurting my ears. Here's you with one on each hip, just doing yeah. these. Yeah, <laughs> no, don't give <laughs> exactly. A so, I've got some manning up to do. That's that's what I come out of that experience with, mate. I want to talk about just real quick is coming out of the military. What 
yeah, I mean, you, you talked about your own personal experiences. You've got the Heal the Heroes program, which I absolutely love. Talk me through the Heal the Heroes program and what does it heal? Yeah. So first of all, I want to thank you for being such a big part of the program. I know you come on and speak to our veterans all the time. So again, thank you so much for that. But, uh, you know, that was another program that came out of, um, well, they say like necessity is the mother of invention. It really did come out of necessity. And in 2018 is when I first met my wife. How did you guys meet, by the way? Side note, how did you guys meet? It's a good story, man. We got time for it? Let me give you a Yeah, yeah, we got time. Okay, so was it on Tinder? Was it on Tinder? No, it wasn't on Tinder. Okay. It All was, right. uh, I met her at the, uh, at the Nashville airport. I was in a wheelchair at the time and I wasn't, <laughs> I wow. wasn't in a wheelchair out of necessity. I was in a wheelchair out of satire. And, uh, so did she pity you? She did. You know, so I met this, I met this guy a couple of months prior. Uh, on a I honestly, dude, I honestly thought you guys met at, you know, rescuing people at the hurricane or something or, or uh, one of the hurricane things and you bonded over, over. Oh, but no, you were faking in a wheelchair. I was faking, faking in a wheelchair. Yeah, I'd met this guy a couple of years, uh, a couple of months prior at a bar at an airport, and I just started talking to him. And he asked me what I did. I said, "As an army," I asked him what he did, and he said, "I do. Uh, I lease wheelchairs to hospitals and and such." And I was like, "Oh, that's cool." And I was like, "Do you know any wheelchair tricks?" He's like, "Heck yeah!" <laughs> so he went and showed me like how to do some wheelies. And then so you fast forward a couple months later, I'm with my buddy and his wife, and. Uh, I was like, hey, Austin, check it out, man. Like, I know how to do these super awesome wheelchair tricks. So I was wheeling around in this chair, and his wife, Lauren, went and saw Brittany, and um, and, uh, she was waiting at a restaurant because we were both on a delayed flight. And she recognized her because my wife is pretty known, and uh, especially for her real estate and philanthropy. Asked her if she could buy her a drink. And you know what's interesting? My wife says it exactly this way, too. She asked her if she could buy her a drink, and it was probably noon or something like that. And asked her some real estate questions. And my wife said, it's always been on her bucket list to day drink. Because she never, she had heart. That's what she said. And uh, so there you go, man. Like that was her bucket list. That shows, you know, how focused she is, right? Not me. (laughs) I was, I was already pissed rolling around on a wheelchair. So we get, we get introduced and uh, she's like, this is my friend, Jeremy. He's a green beret. And she's like, oh my gosh, she's in a wheelchair. She took her an hour and a half. Because I rolled around that damn thing for like two hours. Until the plane boarded before I got out of it, she didn't realize I could walk. So yeah, it was interesting. It was oh, good, man. That's funny. Uh, yeah. No, so you kept the joke going and you got the sympathy for two two good hours before you admitted yep. uh, that you could walk. It worked out great. Yeah. Wow. And then, uh, wow. That is one of your best. That's one of your best. There you go. That's how we ended up meeting each other, which was which was pretty interesting. Yeah, we talked about the necessity, right? Like, uh, you know, and I joke around about the time I I was drinking, but get like on a serious note for a little bit is, uh, you know, I had a lot of those post-traumatic stress stuff. I had uh, relationship things that had happened. I had all of this that was rearing its head to me. And the only way I learned how to cope with it was drinking. And I had been a very heavy drinker, an alcoholic, which is something that I, you know, I now recognize for the better part of, you know, over 10 years. And I was very much a drinker at the time when I met her. I didn't realize I had a problem, but when I look back on it, you know, I had three sets of friend groups. That way I could go drink with them six nights a week because they would only go out two nights a week, right? I was drinking very heavily. And I found, you know, that there was, it was masking some serious trauma that I had and um, some suicidal thoughts and all this stuff that that was really interesting to me. And when I got to the point where I decided that I was going to get out of the military, this is in 2020, everybody's favorite year, 
I decided to get out of the military and uh, and in doing so, I went to this program at the at Fort Campbell. It's called an Intrepid Spirit, and what it is, it's for uh, service members like myself who have had traumatic brain injuries, and I've had through those through some IED blasts and weapons I've had to shoot and stuff. And it's a great program. But when I when I went to this program, I, I sat down in front of a panel of doctors, and you, know, you have like a neurologist and a psychologist and all the whole gambit, and they take a look at your test results and your MRI and and they come up with a treatment plan for you. I had never spoken to a psychologist before, and they assigned me one. And I started talking to this woman, but it was COVID time, right? So my prescribed times with her was was once an hour session every two weeks. So the very first call I get on with her, uh, she asked me to relive a traumatic instance, that not one that comes to my mind immediately, but one that I have to think really hard to remember. So one that I, I guess the idea is that I buried, right? I bring up this thought, uh, which is, I remember we got some intelligence in Iraq and that about this uh, ethnic cleansing in a mass grave. And so we went out there and we were, we ended up digging, trying to see if there was a grave there. And we just dug with our hands and shovels and dug up all these bodies, these like little kids and people. And I remember just like seeing their decode, you know, decomposed faces and hands and, you know, it was terrible. And, and, uh, so I bring that up to her, explain the story, and, you know, ding, the hour's up. So she tells me, we'll dig into this in two weeks, right? So two weeks later go, and she asks me how I'm doing, and I say, you know, I'm doing like, I'm feeling terrible. I've got my drink, my nightmares are back. I'm anxious. I'm depressed. I started drinking again because that was like my second or third time trying to go sober. And she immediately assigned, uh, prescribes me some prescription medication. So I get on like Zoloft. Thanks for triggering me. Yeah, and it's immense. There's so many people, and I, and I know that uh, those that are listening, especially service members, will U.S. ones is well, what I know anyways. Like that's the the big problem with people that have good intentions, but maybe not fully understanding, and you get kind of grouped into everything instead of being like an individual case. And from that, I got to a point where uh, I was in a real bad way, and I was also so now I'm I'm on prescription medication, so I'm I'm like a different version of myself. I'm trying to quit drinking. It all came to head in December 6, 2020. I attempted to take my life. And I had a couple things that saved me that day. And one of them was my great Dane captain. He pushed the door open and walked in on me before I could pull the trigger. And it was, man, it was heavy and it was deep. And I was at the, the bottom. And I remember really taking inventory and stock of why am I there? What are these obstacles that are getting me to think this way? And you know, the, the one that was really obvious to me was drinking. You know, and I took that drinking instead of it being like an ally, I put that thing in front of me as like my enemy. And now I, you know, like I hate alcohol. Like I hate it. My mentality in the military as a, as, as a soldier and warrior, like that's my enemy. I'm going to destroy it. So that's the mentality that I have now with alcohol. And I started realizing and talking to people that were attracted to recovery and what we're doing with disaster relief and what we had announced that we were doing, which anti-human trafficking, you know, it wasn't just the mission. It was the community and it was the people that are in it, such as myself, that have overcome obstacles that they are currently facing. We created a support group and we, and that was the necessity. We realized that there was more to it. So why don't we come up with a program that helps these veterans of the military and first responder community out to deal with their demons so they, as some of the most qualified people in the world in saving lives, can then get redeployed out after they've been healed and go out and do good work. That's the genesis of our program. Yeah, and the program is so all-encompassing too. I mean, I do my bit, but it's, you know, a spoke in the wheel of what you provide. And how much is it an investment to sponsor a vet to do the program? Yes. So our programs, it's a year long. Yeah, after that year year's over, we have a, a community. So we don't ever 
kick them out of the program. Like it's designed to be indefinite. So for one, uh, one hero to go through our programs called Heal the Heroes, so we call them heroes, and they are heroes, uh, is fifteen thousand U.S. dollars to sponsor. And it's important to remember that if you go to HealTheHeroesInitiative.com or you go to ArrowRecovery.org and look up our Heal the Heroes pillar, you don't have to sponsor somebody to nominate them. Now the sponsoring helps us because it. You know, instead of myself and other operators going out and trying to raise money, we're out actually going out and rescuing people. But uh, I don't want anybody to feel discouraged by not nominating somebody that you recognize is in a bad spot. Please give us a chance. Our, our only qualifications for them is they need to be a veteran of the military or first responder community. That could be police. That could be fire. And that doesn't have to be a U.S. veteran. This is it's an international program. That we run as well. If there's any Aussies that are feeling down under the weather, you see what I did there? They can come to our program too. I see what you did there. It was uh, not that good. It was terrible. I'll, I'll do the jokes, mate. Uh, thank you. Look, the uh, <laughs> no, nah, that's I didn't know that, man. Like that's unreal. I, I mean, what are the stats? You know, with vets, what's the fight that you're fighting with the Heal the Heroes program? Because the the suicide rates are nuts. You know. We've touched on the overprescription of antidepressants and all the other overprescribed drugs that, you know, I look at the homeless crisis in America, a lot of vets in amongst all that, isn't there? Oh um, my gosh, yeah. You know, I'm casting aspersions here, but, you know, just talk to me about the stats and the fight that you're fighting with this program. It's uphill, but it's necessary. And, and I always, you know, that's one of the biggest things that get me fired up is like, well, why do you even do something, you know, because it matters to that one. It's not about the, the statistics. And, but in this case, I mean, they're real eye-opening. And, you know, I know the, the U.S. numbers, and it's it's something insane. Like, every 86 minutes, U.S. service members commit suicide. Bullshit. Really? Every 86 minutes. And the highest demographic for that is the special operations community, which is where I came from. And, um, you know, and that it's, it's unbelievable how often that is. And I know so many people that have killed themselves. And I call them, uh, they're really tough phone calls to get, but I, I call them, do you remember phone calls? Because you'll get, I'll have a, somebody I served with call me and be like, Hey, Jeremy, do you remember? And I'm like, Oh, here we go. You know, and that's either killed in action or, you know, killed themselves. And I'll be honest with you more times than not. I know nearly as many people who have killed themselves personally than I've known that of people I know personally that have been killed in combat, which is unbelievable. Yeah. Tell me about the success of the Heal the Heroes program. You know, I know you've got some great stats that you're building. With each program that you do, you're building this, I guess, magnificent evidence, positive case file for why this program is so amazing, right? Yeah. You know, in our uh, tagline for it is we prescribe purpose, not pills. And I think that's why we align so well with you and and, uh, and what you have going on with, with Bucket List is it's we've all got stuff we're dealing with, man. We really do. Some of us more so than others and people way more so than me or, you know, but it's like, where do we choose to keep our mind at? Where do we choose to focus on? What goals do we have farther in our life? How do we want to be remembered when we do die and, and us not punching our own ticket when we get out of there? There's so much more. And, you know, and I'm, I'm a godly man. So I, I really believe that we all have a very amazing calling on this earth. And it's our job to find out what that is and definitely live long enough to do our best to accomplish it. We've been really successful. I know of uh, at least, personally know of at least six suicide saves we've had within the program. And that, I mean, that's enough right there, right? And it's it's a new program too. We have 108 veterans that are in it currently. We have our next 25 veterans going through uh, January 5th through 9th. They'll start the phase one of it. 
and we do 25 veterans a quarter. So our aim is to have 100 veterans a year and uh, to never stop. We want to just keep going. And um, these guys and gals, we did our first female platoon. I, I know you went and spoke to them. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that's a whole other bucket of problems that the females have to deal with that I had no idea. And a lot of their trauma comes from the men that they serve with that's supposed to be on their team, which is it's pathetic and it's disgusting. You know, that that's really what we're, you know, we're trying to do is combat the problem that they're our most capable people, in my opinion, are taking themselves out of the fight. And we got to remind them that you're not once a warrior, you're always a warrior. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about how does that lead into aerial recovery? What was set up first, Hero the Heroes or aerial recovery? So aerial recovery was initially set up and our it was set up as a disaster relief organization. It actually used to be called Aero Global Community. It's, it's the impact arm of uh, Aerial Group, which is what my wife founded. And in 2019, her and I uh, went to Hurricane Dorian together. I was still active duty Green Beret. She's an entrepreneur, but she has uh, disaster relief experience from Hurricane Irma 2017, which devastated BVI. So I went out there with her and she watched me kind of in action. And she's like, man, you're a, man, these vets are pretty good. And her being an entrepreneur, she's like, all right, we, there's something here. So we, Ended up developing it in pre a, or post wheelchair. What was the uh, post wheelchair? <laughs> okay, all right, all right. PW, yeah. post wheelchair. <laughs> so that was uh, that's kind of how we designed it, and you know, and we really very carefully created this nonprofit because it's it was designed to assist those that are most in need after natural and man made disasters with recognizing and knowing that during these events of extreme vulnerability. And extreme desperation is a breeding ground for human traffickers to come in and, t and prey upon those that are most vulnerable. So we've always planned this to be a disaster relief organization that also protects those against human traffickers. And um, and that's what we do now. We, we, we do both of those. So we, uh, we help after natural man-made disasters. And then we also go and actively deploy and step in and, and help pull people out of the darkest hell that there is in my opinion which is being a, a slave that's so messed up isn't it, it like you, you know <laughs> the world is and you talk you know error recovery and you you talk about the evil on this planet and doing the work that you've done that you've been exposed to evil exists right oh absolutely evil exists and you know how the, the way that I know it exists the most is because the areas that we choose to combat in the darkness of child sex slavery, organ harvesting, you know, these things that if most people can't even imagine the terrible things that happen to these people and to these children and these women and these men, they can't imagine it. And the more successful we are at combating it, the more difficult it is for us to combat. And I really believe that that's, that's a, a true testament that when you are actively fighting against the enemy or, and you're, you're fighting against the devil, like he does counterattack you. And um, so I've I've noticed that things get more difficult the more success we have, and I also think that's a great lesson for everybody to be encouraged that you don't ever don't ever give up when things get hard. It just when, a lot of times when things are difficult, it means that you're about you're on a big breakthrough, or there is something at you because you're about to do something really good in this world. And what has the impact of you know the Tim's work and the Sound of Freedom? You know that's just put, put a light, you know, shine a light on on this you know child trafficking issue even more helped or hindered or what's the flow on effect well i think you would have to right now especially you'd have to it depends on who you ask right i think the sound of freedom has been 
an amazing as an awareness tool. I know Tim Ballard very personally, and I've viewed him as a mentor. I, I went on a lot of undercover operations from him, and he's the man I learned from on how to do some of these operations. And uh, the Sound of Freedom got us access at the highest level to go into countries and being invited by presidents to come meet with them and, uh, and figure out how we can help them in their countries, which is absolutely a blessing. But then I talked about that counterattack, right? So Tim comes out with this movie, and you'd have to have your head under a rock to understand the, the accusations that are against him now. There's multiple people that have come out against him saying that he's done you know, in, inappropriate stuff while on missions and all this stuff. And I'll say it this way. I know the man personally, and to me, it's completely out of character for the accusations that are against him. I don't believe them to be true. However, you know, everybody in, is uh, afforded due process. And, uh, you know, I don't want to take anything away from anybody who is accusing, because if, if that stuff does proven to be true, like I, my heart goes out to them, too, because nobody deserves in any aspect, no matter what the cause is, to be taken advantage of. So I don't know how that all play out. I don't think them to be true, but um, that all happened with a different organization than my organization. So I don't quite know. I don't know the of it. I just know the man personally, and I don't believe them to be. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Like the greatest awareness movie in my opinion ever for human trafficking and and now the man who it's based upon is under all of this attack scrutiny so yeah usually how yeah. that really that's how it works so we'll see all well of we could get into the hierarchy that are attacking him and you know all the rest of it the media and all the other shit that goes along with it but you know you're a man of integrity mate and if you know a guy as much as you probably know tim you're speaking the truth you know like you can only take on face value and the character that you know right exactly yeah more recently you've been into ukraine are you doing anything around the gaza israel thing or it's just too fresh like how quickly does aerial recovery sort of go in it depends right it depends on means you know we're still a pretty young organization we did a ton of work in ukraine last year we evacuated over 7500 people from dangerous situations and working through partners and country and all of that so there was very effective out there uh we are monitoring you know, the Israel-Palestine conflict right now, there's actually one of our Heal the Heroes veterans. He's in Israel right now assisting with another organization. And, you know, we encourage these guys to be out. If you're not out with their recovery, go out and help with another organization. And he's out with uh, a group called World Central Kitchen. We've been on many responses with them. They're fantastic. They get out there and they, man, they just feed people that are in trouble. That's just what they do. And they're really damn good at it. So, Really love working with those guys and, and proud of uh, our hero being out there working with them. But, uh, you know, that's a thing, right? Like, I even contacted uh, the uh, Israeli Defense Forces directly, and I asked, you know, like, what sort of stuff that they need. And most of the stuff they need is uh, something that's kind of out of our privy, which is, you know, equipment, you know, and, and that's not something we can provide a nonprofit. Then we looked into Egypt as well, and is there a way that we can assist with refugees that are coming out of Palestine? So no matter what the United States of America is, who they're allied towards. Uh, we're a humanitarian organization and we need people. So we just want to help people. So we'll go yeah, yeah. to help people. What's the typical, like you've got allies, you know, alliances all around the world, aerial recovery, right? And every, every country, I dare say, or you quickly make those alliances. What's the typical work, you know, um, that you would do? And can a lay person jump aboard? How does that work? Yeah, so the, the way that we're designed are... Most of our operators, we call them humanitarian special operators. These, most of them come from our Heal the Heroes program. 
because that's a way for them to get back on purpose, right? My wife has a group called GeForce, which is a mastermind group. They are also, they come to some of our trainings too. They're actually the phase three of the Heal the Heroes program. There's nine months of mentorship from an entrepreneur community to help give the skills, the life skills and financial and educational skills veterans too. They're invited out. And then we do have special invites, right? Like um, people that are in our network that we know their character. If you're ever interested, for instance, we would definitely accept you into our trainings. And then we it's train the everyone. It's on the bucket list. There you go. Let's do it. I'll let you know what the next ones are. And uh, <laughs> it's easier for you to get the gun because I'm shit ass with guns. <laughs> oh, we don't need guns. Don't worry. For better or worse, we don't have guns anymore. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> and our, our typical response, it depends on where we're going, but like uh, I'll use Lahaina, for instance. So Maui fires happened. I think a, a lot of people are aware of that. And that was just an unfortunate, perfect storm of events where a fire kicks off and there's a, a cyclone or a hurricane far enough off that it's not bringing rain, but it's bringing wind and it billows this fire and it destroys this town. And we were actually the first outside organization outside of the Hawaii Islands to get out there from Nashville, Tennessee. You're at the soup belly, yeah. Yeah, so we got out there quick, and uh, we had our heroes out there responding and some of our core team. And in that instance, you know, we do search and rescue, but we were asked to go out and help set up their communications. We did. Uh, we have a drone team that went out and mapped what everything looks like, so to help with the searching for some of the uh, first responders that were down there on scene. So, you know, typically we function as that group that gets there within about 48 hours in an event and stays for about two weeks. And we help people with medical and first response and work as a forward recon element for other larger organizations that are bringing food. And yeah, I mean, who better when you're trying to deal with chaos and have a level head and citizens in disaster zones, war zones, ain't got that training. So they all go to shit. And so you bring that level level head and some organization and yeah, it just makes perfect sense. Yeah. And a lot of those people too that are, you know, the first responders that are there, it's a lot different being someone who's not as emotionally connected. You know, I, I remember talking to the retired police commissioner from the British Virgin Islands. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. And he was telling me, you know, he didn't even, when that hurricane came through, he didn't even know how his family was doing for 48 hours. They yeah. went through the event as well. So you to be able to come out and help them do their jobs or even go check on their families for them. We'll do that too. You know, we'll go in and be a blessing whatever way we can be to help them do their jobs better. Like that's the idea is force multiplication. How can we come in with the littlest amount of people and have the biggest amount of impact working through people who are already there? Yeah. Yeah. Love it, man. Hey, look, um, I want to just quickly ask you, uh, just from an Australian's point of view and, and we're wrapping up here too, guys. Just from an Australian's point of view, you know, the, the shootings in America, world champions, guns and the US military, what's your stance on it? More guns, give them to teachers, what's the deal? So I'm a, you know, I'm going to be a, a protector of the amendments is kind of how I, you know, I understand the, the need for, for weapons. I believe in every, every person's right to protect themselves and their families. I think that at some point you can't get a little overboard with the amount of weapons that you have and all of that. But you know what? <laughs> you think? Yeah. Right. I think there's like three weapons to every person in the United States or something crazy like that. Yeah. But there's, um, you know, like that's just the way our constitution is. So I don't think, you know, you got that old adage. It's not that the gun doesn't pull its own trigger. And if someone's really out there to kill a bunch of people, they can go take a bus or a truck and just drive through a crowd. I think a lot of it is a cultural thing. There needs to be a shift in our mindset a better outlet 
recognition and ways to treat people that are suffering from mental illness. There's things called like hard targets, right? Like for schools and those types of places to protect themselves a little bit better and have the right people on staff and training. The guns in the United States, they're not going anywhere. If you get rid of a 30 round clip and have 15 round clips, people are just going to carry two clips. It needs to come from the person in the mindset. So that's where I, I feel the biggest problem is. More of a mental health issue, isn't it? Rather than a guns issue. Yeah. That's what I per personally believe. Talking about families, protection, new dad. Dude, how is, uh, so happy for you guys. How has life changed? Oh my gosh. You know, I've got this little fella, bear, yeah. bear lock. I'm <laughs> guessing. Danger is strong, that is a strong. I mean, I'm surprised that Bear Lock didn't come out with a beard. Yeah. Oh, that's what I. You know, we we actually we did an ultrasound. <laughs> that's a manly did. man's name, right there. So an ultrasound like, hey, look, I can see hair, and I was like, that must be his beard. Uh, <laughs> Beard's first. Uh, no, man, like it's a whole new level of perspective, and you know, and I've dedicated a, a lot of my retired life and to protect children, and that's what we're we're doing as well. And now that I have a child, it's just more so reaffirming what we're trying to do. And, and more so too, you know, like the importance of uh, understanding that your first responsibility as a man is your household, is your family, is your wife, is your children. So let's not neglect that. And I think, especially as veterans and people that go out to go serve and help others, sometimes we can use that as a holy excuse to get away from our responsibilities. That's what I'm, you know, I'm doing now and I'm learning now too, that there's a you got to be the hero, another cliche, you got to be the hero at home before you go be the, the hero to the rest of the world. You know, I'm working with my wife now to best be the, the husband and the father that I need to be and give the right example because that's what I can influence. And if you want to talk about changing cultures and, and not, you know, what can I do to not raise a school shooter? That's what I need to be working on. And, and that's being present and being home and teaching values. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not the government. It's not anything else. It's not outside influences. It's it's you. Yeah, love that. Be the example for others. Mate, uh, last question. I asked this of all my guests. Imagine a stadium full of people and a stage up the front with a big booming microphone. What would you love to say as the speaker? What would you love to say? Who do you choose to be in the audience? Well, I would love to speak about what I'm doing at Aero Recovery, and it's more than just my organization. What I would say, I would want the audience filled with people who don't feel whole. And I want the audience filled with people that when I speak to them, it reaches them and then they go and they talk about it and they talk about their feelings. So I would want people that are sitting in an audience and stadium filled that don't feel that they are able to be vulnerable, don't feel that they're able to talk about the problems that they have. And I would go up there and I would tell my story. I would talk about my issues with depression, my issues with suicide, my continuous issues with both of those. They haven't gone away. My issues with alcohol and let them know through my actions, the types of stuff and the work that I've been able to do myself and with aerial recovery and getting that poison out of you and the importance of the spoken word and telling your truth and how impactful that could be. And I would hope that they hear that and they feel able to go out and go speak to other people and just spread that message of the strength and vulnerability. So that's that's what I would say if I got up. Love that, brother. And that's why we mates. And I've got to say too, I um, gave up drinking when I turned 50 as well. And this was back in May. So we're, I don't know, eight months or something into it. 
And yeah, man, like, and you were one of the inspirations for doing that. You set a great example and, you know, look at yourself and Charlie and, you know, a few of the crew that, that we jointly know, all heavy hitters, all have gone sober. And yeah, just thanks for being an inspiration, bro. I appreciate you telling me that. And it's just, uh, I'm very proud of you for doing it. And you, you know, you know, that ripple effect of you doing it and the audience you have, that's just positive vibes and energy and ripples that go out and impact people man so i'm proud of you for doing that all right heal the heroes error recovery you know how do we how do people connect how do people donate how do people get into your world too easy if you're looking to find out more about our mission or donate go to arrowrecovery.org you can find just right at the top of the screen you can find our pillars up there or a, a click to donate if you have direct questions for myself or the organization you can follow us on instagram at arrow recovery group we have a lot of YouTube videos too that you can check out as well. A lot of great videos that explain what we're doing. So you can go there and you can send an email to comms, C-O-M-M-S, Charlie, Oscar, Mike, Mike, Sierra at aerorecovery.org if you want to send a message out there too or hit me up at Jeremy M. Locke on Instagram too. Shoot me a, a message as well. I'm pretty good about responding to those. Check out our website. You can navigate yourself there and please follow us on socials too. You can see the work that we're doing and we're pretty active on them as well and uh man trev you know us real well too so yeah like anyone anyone who uh yeah i'm a big supporter of the group and uh and we'll continue to be i love what you guys are doing and if you need to connect with jeremy you know like to the cause you want to know more about it feel free to uh, reach out to me as well so i'm here for you amazing stuff dude i'm um, so stoked that you were able to join me on the bucket list life podcast today mate yeah it was awesome brother appreciate you and looking forward to seeing more of you in the u.s yeah definitely thanks man all right brother Thanks so much for listening to the Bucket List Life podcast with the world's number one bucket list expert, Trav Bell. For more great content, go to www.thebucketlistguy.com. We'll see you next time.